Creditable to think, it was 2006 that was recorded. Sandy Tom, great, great song from her album Smile It Confuses People. And I wish I was a punk rocker with flowers in my hair. And in case you're wondering which movie it came from, of course it didn't come from a movie. It wasn't a film soundtrack. But it's sort of got a bit of a bearing on today's uh, cult film, hasn't it? Because it was memories of youth and um, rebellion and listening to music and enjoying ourselves, which is sort of almost what the, today's movie's about. There is a loose connection with uh, today's cult film, which is Quadrophenia, and we'll talk about that yes. in about 15 minutes, um, but obviously not the specific mood of rebellion that she's yes. talking about. Yes, but I have, I have to remember, because that was the... The the uh, the period of my uh, childhood and well teenage years was um, was the the, the the revolts riots of 60, the late sixties and then the punk movement of the late seventies. The mod was the sort of era before that, which is just yes. a different way for young people to express the, express themselves, I guess. Yes, and one of the things that we'll come on to about. Um the, uh, the, the execution of Quadrophenia is the way that it sort of reaches out to the punk audience of the day, but we'll come on to all of that in about 15 minutes' time. Why not? Shall we start with the top ten? Good morning, by the way, Richard. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Daniel. Daniel Mumby, of course, our movie critic and expert. In Flatterer. To uh, talk about the top ten and uh, Quadrophenia, and then we'll be having a look at a few new releases as mm -hmm. well, won't we? All right. And how are you, by the way? I'm soaked to the skin, but I'm otherwise pretty good. Great. Right. And three new entries in the top ten. Yeah, which Numbers is... Numbers one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. So but, it's all uh, change. We'll start from the bottom there, shall well, we? Well, shall we start with what's not in this week? And you were right, weren't you, on uh, the King's Speech? Yeah, although I didn't get round to actually agreeing the amount of the bet, so it <laughs> yes, doesn't, doesn't really make that much difference. Have an empty tin of Coke. <laughs> that's so kind of you. Right. And all on the Lionheart Radio budget. Yes. And one that sadly didn't make it out of the top ten was uh, number ten, Hall Pass. Well, it's on its way out. I mean, it won't be there next week. The, the big problem with it is that it isn't funny and the Farrelly's haven't been, no, passingly funny for quite some time. Right. Number nine, The Lincoln Lawyer. Um, Matthew McConaughey's best work in quite a long time, not that that's saying a great deal considering some of the films he's made. I mean, it is essentially a TV film with him returning to the same sort of character he played in A Time to Kill, which was an adaptation of a John Grisham novel. It's not terrible, but it's just a bit sort of flat and pedestrian. Right. The Great Bill Nighy, number eight. Yeah. Chalet Girl. Chalet Girl. It's, it's sort of Richard Curtis light, you know, it's not very well made. The cast are mostly playing themselves, Bill Nighy included, and it is a very predictable story, but it is kind of charming in a sort of flimsy British sort of way. Right. Next, number seven, Anuva Hood. Awful. Right. <laughs> number six, Battle Los Angeles. <sighs> it's just boring. Uh, yet another derivative alien invasion film which doesn't have any of the darkness of War of the Worlds, particularly the Spielberg version of War of the Worlds, and it's it, it is, like we said last week, what Mike, what it would have looked like if Michael Bay had done Independence Day. It just isn't any good at all, and I do not understand why Aaron Eckhart is doing this sort of thing. Trust us, it's going to get better. Number five, um, Liam Neeson, Diane Kruger, January Jones, Unknown. And I'm surprised it's still doing so well, considering that if you've seen the trailer, you've pretty much seen the film. I mean, I like Liam Neeson, but I think that he's sort of... He's in a strange period in his career when he's sort of kind of downsized into effectively kind of upmarket B-movies when he was working with Luke Besson on Taken, and there's going to be a sequel to that coming out next year. So I think it's okay, but he does need to get back to something a little more upmarket. Right. The voice of Johnny Depp, number four, with Rango. 
it's fine. It's Gorvabinsky's best film, but again, that's not saying very much. You know, perfectly decent uh, 2D animation, and Johnny Depp is. I know I'll see him in pretty much anything, but he does need to. Uh, he does need to avoid working with Gorvabinsky as best he can. Right. One of the films of the week from last week's previews, uh, The Eagle, number three, new entry, which I really like. I mean, it's it's I'm it's I'm surprised that a lot of the critics, you know, particularly on Rotten Tomatoes, which sort of takes a sample of them, they haven't embraced it as much as. Um, many people I've spoken to have actually seen it, and I think it's a lot of that criticism seems to be centering on Channing Tatum's performance. When we reviewed it last week, I, I uh, cited Paul Young, who, uh, you know, for people who are listening to this program at the start, he described Channing Tatum as a walking lump of granite. I don't think it's as good as Gladiator because very few sort of sword and sandal epics are even half as good as Gladiator. But I like the story. I think the action's great. Jamie Bell is very, very good, and it is just good fun. If you're a twelve-year-old boy, you can't believe you like the amount of kind of swashbuckling swordplay that's on offer. I really fancy going to see that. It's, we're sort of hard lined up to go but then uh, my wife got a, a cold and a cough and a very bad cough and a continually bad cough so she was th thinking that we might well get thrown out the cinema if she, if she went along so we will make a, a date for it if she ever recovers <laughs> Right, well, uh, let me know, because it'll probably yes. be around in the top ten for at least another week. Right. So I shall hold you to that. One I'd not heard of at number two. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, we didn't get a chance to do this last week because we ran out of time. It's, it's under a couple of titles. The title that it's officially listed as on the IMDb is Sammy's Adventures, The Secret Passage, but it's also known as A Turtle's Tale. And it's uh, a Belgian animation which has been dubbed into the English language. The story is there's a turtle that's uh, born, he uh, goes into the water, falls in love with another turtle. They get separated and spend uh, the rest of the film sort of looking for each other. Um, have you seen Finding Nemo? Yes. Then it's essentially that, but without any of the sort of charm of you no know, Pixar or indeed the proper storyline. There's also vague resemblances to that um, very bizarre Don Bluth film called The Pebble and the Penguin, which came out in the mid-90s. I mean, it's not, it's not terrible, but it's not Finding Nemo, and it's a bit too close to the storyline of Finding Nemo to sort of cut the mustard. Right. Because for, that, for me, Finding Nemo remains the best thing Pixar have done. So now I know. Right. Yes. So, the lovely Anna Friel at number one, uh, film we reviewed last week, mm -hmm. Limitless. Which is surprisingly decent for what is essentially an extended Twilight Zone episode. I mean, there is some resemblance to sort of the early work of Darren Aronofsky with you No know, Pie and Requiem for a Dream because there is sort of examination of drug abuse and mental illness, albeit in a very sort of standoffish way. It's delivered in a very sort of trashy, playful, mainstream way. And like I said, it's not perfect, but it's perfectly fine as a sort of middling techno thriller. Right, so the picks of the week then. The Eagle, definitely. The Eagle is definitely, um, out of the other, I mean, Limitless is okay. That's what I say. I mean, it, don't expect Requiem for a Dream if you're a fan of Aronofsky. Um, the only other one I'd say recommend is Chalet Girl, although that is a sort of homegrown British comedy, so it won't have the highest production values, but again, perfectly charming, perfectly decent. Yeah. I guess I was probably quite surprised to see the Eagle come in so high, but uh, good to see it's happening. Why were you surprised? Um, I mean, it doesn't seem the sort of classic one that would grab everybody in, but maybe it is with the, squash, the squashbuckling. Yeah, I dare say a lot of people in this region went to, went to see it, considering well, how much yes. territorial sure, stuff there is with the I, I'm sure all the locals will have been out with the, uh, the Hadrian's War bit and the, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Jamie Bell. They should actually have a screening on Hadrian's Wall, just project it straight on, as you know. Yes. Why this must never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting thought. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Right, so that's the top ten. Shall we uh, just queue up our cult film with a, a trailer that I found that was made for its 
uh, when it was released. By all means. Um, I have to say the visuals are better than the sound, but we'll... I think we can imagine. Yes. <laughs> Quadrophenia, a major musical statement about an angry generation, is now a motion picture for every generation. Quadrophenia, for everyone who was ever convinced he was right because the world was wrong. And I guess it's a minute and 32 seconds long. That was the uh, the cinema version of the trailer, not yes. the TV version. And having heard that, it, you know, it isn't the same without the visuals, is it? No, it's not. No, it's... Uh, I love that line, as, as everybody heard, because I didn't <laughs> put the microphones <laughs> yes, down. Yes, you might have done. That line about uh, schizophrenia. It's uh, really quite... Uh, it is pretty quite good. wittily written. Yes. It's uh, very sharply written. Right, so what we'll do is we'll set up the film and then we'll play, because um, we're going to give you a bit of a treat with uh, something from the soundtrack as well Great. as the trailer. Uh, so we'll set up the film. It's an adaptation of uh, The Who's second rock opera, uh, which is uh, released as an album in, I think, November 1973. Their first rock opera, Tommy, which had been uh, made as an album in May 69, had been previously adapted by, um, by a director called Ken Russell in 1975, which actually starred the band, Roger Daltrey, in his second um, lead role after Listomania, which we'll come on to in a second. Um, this, this is the debut film by Frank Rodham, who, you know, his career never really lived up to this, to be honest. I mean, I think the last thing he made was a, a mountain climbing drama called K2 in the 90s starring Sylvester Stallone, which did no business at all. Um, so it's the second production of a company called The Who Films, which was originally set up to distribute The Kids Are All Right, which was the sort of the documentary made about The Who up until the death of Keith Moon, directed by a fan called uh, Jeff Stein. And they very much saw their interest in filmmaking, because not only had they done Tommy, but they bought a stake in Shepperton Studios. Subsequently, The Who were uh, the main backers of a film called McVicar, which was uh, the real-life story of John McVicar, again starring Roger Daltrey and with an original soundtrack by Pete Townsend. So, no, they were sort of experimenting with the medium at the time when they were sort of, well, not drifting into obsolescence, but struggling to kind of keep up with the pace of contemporary pop music. Yeah. Uh, so the quick plot summary, uh, the story... I mean, it's a sort of loose adaptation, as will become clear, but the story is that there's a mod called Jimmy Cooper, who is played by Phil Daniels. He's part of a gang of mods growing up in London in the mid-60s, and they, they do all sorts of mod stuff. They go to parties, they play Who records, they take amphetamines, which are known as blues in the film, and they always look smarter than anyone else oh, for miles. great clothes. Yes, and yes. sort of incredibly tailored suits, slicked hair, yes. riding around on scooters with kind of parka jackets and duffel coats. I mean, if you are a sort of fashionista, you can't believe your luck. Uh, 
Uh, one bank holiday, Jimmy and his mates uh, go down to Brighton where there is a confrontation with the rockers, which are these people who are fans of 1950s rock and roll as opposed to early 60s mod bands. Um, Jimmy ends up getting arrested and thrown out of his home and then everything goes downhill, or should I say down cliff from there. And I say down cliff because, well, if you've seen the ending of Quadrophenia, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, at this point, to give you an idea of what the film is like, perhaps a better idea than that trailer gig, we'll play you a little bit from the soundtrack. This is uh, a track called The Real Me, which plays over the opening credits. I think I was saying last week I probably wasn't the greatest fan of The Who when I was young, but listening to, listening to it again, uh, realise it's really a cracking band. It is. Great music. Yeah. I mean, so great music, great clothes, great film. Well, very good film at any rate. Um, here's the thing with Quadrophenia. In order to kind of understand and appreciate the film, it helps to have a sort of bit of background understanding about the status of the band when they made it. Um, and that sort of helps to illuminate the comparison with uh, their earlier rock opera, Tommy. Have you seen Ken Russell's film version of Tommy? Yes. What did you think of it? That was a great film. In, in what, what sort of... Do you think it's better than Quadrophenia is what I'm getting at, I suppose? Um... Different film, I would say. Good answer. Because um, when they made Tommy into a film, the Who were very much sort of at the peak of their powers, you know, commercially and critically, in the sense that they had they had the money and the following, basically, to be a bit sort of experimental and exuberant and over yeah. the top. And Ken Russell was a director who always had a sort of innate interest in opera and classical music. I mean, he started out his career making uh, biopics of composers for the BBC, so he made films like Elgar and Marla, which are about, you know, classical music within the confines of madness. And... Um, just before Tommy, he directed Roger Daltrey in a film called Lizdomania with Rick Wakeman in, which was a sort of pop-style uh, uh, biopic of Franz Liszt, which is, it's okay, I mean, it's, it's sort of all over the place, but... And he approached Tommy as an opera that just happened to have been written by a rock band rather than a rock opera as a separate entity, and so for all the stuff that's in Tommy, which is sort of striking or memorable, like the Acid Queen sequence, where, you know, it's Roger Daltrey goes into that suit of armour with all the needles yeah, on the outside, that. and well, then Robert yes. Powell comes out yeah. in flower. That's a really great image, but in the midst of all that, you have a lot which, well... I don't know how it must have looked at the time, but now it kind of looks a bit sort of pompous and naff, like, you know, the scenes of Anne-Margaret getting covered in baked beans and Jack Nicholson and, and um, Oliver Reed, well, singing with the best one in the world, but not really singing. I think it's probably a passage of years, because I think it wouldn't have seemed naff back in... 70s, I guess. Well, perhaps yeah. not. I mean, Russell's a very sort of love-hate director. I mean, he made The Devils, which is a really brilliant film, but he, and certainly after you get past Altered States in the 80s, he does just become a bit over the top for his own sake. So that's when happened when they made Tommy. By the time they came to make Quadrophenia, they were being, the band this is, were being written off as sort of middle-aged dinosaurs by um, punk. You know, you had um, the Sex Pistols kind of taking over the charts. You had people like, well, the Stranglers were starting to come through around the same time. And so all the sort of, those sort of bands had swallowed up the youth audience, which had sort of been the who, which had sort of embraced the Who, and they were threatened with just becoming like a circus act in the way that Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and to some extent even the Rolling Stones because they yeah. sort of accepted their status as being middle-brow light entertainers. This was compounded by the fact that in August 1978 you have the untimely death of Keith Moon um, of a, an overdose of uh, a drug called Hermenevrin which he was taking to curb his drinking and so they'd sort of lost a lot of their firepower so even if Pete Townsend had said you know what let's go out and reclaim the ground we lost to the punks they couldn't really drown out their rivals anymore. No. Mm -hmm. So very much a, a lot of Quadrophenia as a project is about the Who sort of coming along and saying actually we're still relevant not just because of our music but because you have to understand 
the culture that sort of spawned us and the culture that made us famous and a lot of the film is about them sort of reaching out to punk and showing how the mods were effectively the forerunners of the likes of you no know, johnny rotten and so forth i mean there are sort of there is a basic similarity in the sense that you have young people who are sort of a gang mentality with a very unique dress code they eschew authority and they're generally unpleasant to pretty much everyone who doesn't dress like them so there are sort of vague similarities there is a rumor that john johnny rotten was actually screen tested for the lead role but he was dropped because no one would insure him <laughs> which is fair enough considering some of the stuff he was doing in 79 um, uh, that was how, how they could have transformed him into uh, a mod would have been quite fascinating <laughs> yeah how they get his hair to stay in place <laughs> yes. for starters no, that would have been that would have been something else yes <laughs> yes maybe if no if not to give the ending away but if if john lee rotten had done it he probably would have jumped off the cliff at the end just to be fit just to be <laughs> funny uh so because of this approach because of the fact that it's reaching out to sort of punk and you know the youth of that day it isn't operatic like its predecessor it's not even a musical so to speak because you don't have characters sort of bursting into song and actually doing the songs on the album it's much more sort of coming-of-age story about Jimmy, which is set against the rise and fall of the Brighton, of the original version of the mods, and Jimmy is sort of the survivor, like the band, looking back on the movement that they've sort of grown out of and left behind. The storyline incorporates elements of the double album, but they're sort of out of order, because if you remember, the, the album ends with that fantastic track, Love, Rain, O' Me, which is where Jimmy has sort of gone out to Brighton Rock, and his, the boats have floated away, and he's kind of left thinking, well what am I here for anymore? Yeah. And it's a fantastic moment. But this film ends in a slightly different way. Um, so the soundtrack combines tracks from the double album Out of Order with other mod favourites like the Ronettes and the Crystals, and we'll play some uh, Booker T and the MGs at the end of this review to sort of um, give you a bit more of that. And, the f and by the fact that the the album is about something like an hour and 15 minutes long, whereas the film is two hours. So there's already a lot of other stuff yeah. going on in it, apart from just, you know, here's the album in the order that it comes. Um, in terms of the Who's approach to it, I mean, despite the fact that all four members, including Keith Moon, are sort of um, listed as executive producers, it's a very standoff approach in the sense that they only appear in the film on two occasions. One is a poster of Pete Townsend near Jimmy's bed, and the other is an old clip of them performing on a, a TV programme called Ready Steady Go, which was sort of the forerunner of Top of the Pops in the mid-60s. Would you remember Ready, Steady, Go? I do indeed, yes. Would yeah. you remember the Forerunner? Yeah, just around about. The, it was yes. starting around the same time, yes. and then it sort of, because it was, you know, the sort of the youth-oriented end of yes. on Top of the Pops. So, they, like I said, the Who don't appear in it directly, and that means they sort of resist the temptation, because there's, when you're making a biopic based upon a band or something, there are a number of devices which you can use to sort of get the band involved. Um, and they sort of resist all of them, and you can have the band appearing as themselves, sort of like a Pirandella thing of, this is a film about us, but we're in it, and we're sort of commenting on ourselves. You could also have them playing other characters in the way that they sort of did with Tommy, you know, Keith Moon yeah. dressing up as Uncle Ernie and doing it slightly too well. Uh, or, if, if you've seen uh, the Mariah Carey biopic Glitter, in which she dresses up as her 21-year-old self, complete with pigtails and short skirt, which is really horrible. I mean, I'm not a Mariah Carey fan, of her, but they resist all of those things yeah. there is a, this sort of sense of modesty of it's about us but we're not really part of it is reflected in the soundtrack i mean if you've heard the original album version of the track we just played the real me you'll 
you'll think, well, that's a bit, that's a kind of quieter version, because on the album it's all sort of mixed up and it's in quadraphonic yeah. sound. Whereas with the soundtrack of the film Quadrophenia, which is supervised by John Entwistle, the bass player, it's sort of mixed right down low and all the sort of the bass parts have been re-recorded and the drums are sort of quieter. Yeah. I'd appreciated that. Yeah, well, it's not something you'd notice immediately unless you're a fan of the album, but it's very much a case of, instead of Tommy, where the music drives the action forward, here the music is like a background to the actual dialogue and the character building that's going on. There's another typical example of this, which is when uh, there's a scene in the film where they go to a house party and Jimmy puts on um, the original seven-inch single of My Generation. And rather than kind of sitting around and listening to it and appreciating what a great record it is, and it is a great record, the mods start singing and dancing and kind of jumping all over the place until eventually you can't hear the song. And it's a, an interesting way of conveying the emphasis is not on the band, but upon the culture that sort of spawned it and embraced it. But the music's still very good, and you know, for all the, the stick that their, their replacement drummer Kenny Jones get, he does a pretty good job of sort of at least partially replicating Keith Moon's style, which is very difficult to do, and I speak as someone who learnt the drums with that exact intention and failed miserably. <laughs> um, so with that sort of background out of the way, with the, the question is, does Quadrophenia work as a story in its own right? In other words, if you weren't familiar with a Who's music, maybe if you weren't a Who fan, could you go in and enjoy it as a piece of sort of, you know, historically based entertainment? I think in the end it's a pretty good film. It is at heart a sort of character study of youth culture, you know, personified by Jimmy who is a very confused young man. The title of both the album and the film comes from the old-fashioned phrase for a four-way split personality which, you know, ties in with the line that you sort of cited. And it is very much a film in which you have this personal conflict which is externalised in the various encounters that he has and you have the reason that Jimmy attaches himself to the mods in the first place is because he wants, he sees them as a kind of way of having an identity of keeping all these conflicting elements of himself under control but as the film goes on he starts to sort of fragment and question himself and there are all sorts of encounters that he has which sort of tear him in different directions. And so at this point we come on to um, you know, the sort of start of the fact that, that the film is for people of a certain age, a kind of who's who's of British supporting actors. Yeah, um, I was going to say that, quite a list, isn't there? It is quite a list. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've got the complete list, but there's a lot of, you know, interesting... Leslie Ash. Yes, she's in it. She plays um, the sort of girl that uh, Phil Davis... Not Phil Davis, sorry, Phil Daniels has a crush on and they go to Brighton and make out in an alleyway in the middle of the riots. Um, Ray Winston, a rocker. Yeah, very... <laughs> I think this was actually one of Ray Winston's very first film roles. And he, he still kind of, you know, does the Ray Winston thing of speaking with a very broad Cockney accent, and he's very well built in this film. Yeah. So he plays um, a guy called Kevin, who is uh, one of Jimmy's friends, who's just come back from national service, and uh, he, he's a very good friend, but they just happen to be a rocker. When they meet, um, Jimmy and here are in a bathhouse, and you kind of see them, you know, as nature intended, sort of arguing about music, and then they sort of peek over, and actually they know each other. So it's the whole thing about two people who know each other, which yeah. are caught up on different sides, and there's a, a really sort of heartbreaking scene where the mods beat up Kevin, and Jimmy sort of runs away because he can't deal with it. He can't stick up for his friend because that would make him, you know, betraying the mods. But on the other hand, he doesn't condone what they're doing and that sort of brings out the split personality stuff in it. And I guess that little crossover with, uh, with punk Toya Wilcox in it. Yeah, Toya Wilcox, I, I can't remember who she plays. Is she the one that wants to be in love with Jimmy but he's not interested? She was playing monkey. Yes. And uh, she doesn't. She's not very recognisable because hasn't she got a sort of greying pudding basin-y cut in that? So yeah, she, yeah. Yes. But yeah, I mean, Toe, I like Toe Wilcox very much as, as an, an actress, anyway. So, but she was rather more cutting edge in those days. Yes, I will. <laughs> I will grant you that. I mean, I, I grew up with her with Barmy Aunt Boomerang, which is slightly <laughs> less cutting edge. So, 
And so you have all these kind of things going on where Jimmy sort of starts out being the archetypal mod and then various kind of things come along which leave him disillusioned. So Leslie Ash sort of, they have sex in the middle of Brighton during the riots, but then she sort of jilts him and says, oh, it didn't really mean anything, you know, it was a good laugh. You have the fact that Kevin is, well, it's implied that he's killed, but we, in this kind of, after the mods beat him up, we don't really see him again. Yeah. And then there is the whole scene with the ace face placed by, who's played by Sting, whom we'll come on to in a little bit more detail later, because I think he's one of the weaknesses of the film. When they get to Brighton and he's, you know, the ace face, you know, he's the coolest man there with a massive, you know, leather jacket and the wink or pick a shoes. Um, he's someone whom Jimmy completely idolises of, this is what we can do, this is what youth is for. And then he goes back to Brighton and finds, actually, you're working as a bellboy in the very hotel that we smashed up. And just the scales completely fall from his eyes. The film is, I mean, the, the trailer that you played talked about the film as being, you know, a film against indifference, a film for anyone who's, you know, felt that they were right. And it is very much an examination of youth-led revolution and the consequences of it. I mean, the mods were the the sort of the first post-war teenagers and they didn't feel any direct attachment with the values of their parents so they could they felt like well we just don't care let's do what we like so, no that's a vague generalization but broadly speaking and when you get the sequences in the film of the brighton riots where you get these these kind of hundreds of mods swarming on buildings and kind of beating up rockers it's very edgy and visceral and it does feel like you're sort of caught up and um, have you seen um, a film called scum which is about football hooliganism came out around the same time uh, I don't remember it. No, I mean, it was very little seen, but it is an interesting film as far as those go. But it's that same sort of thing of being caught up in a gang mentality of just, you know, one person. Because that riot sequence starts when one of the mods who was knocked down by a bunch of rockers on the way to Brighton spots one of them having, like, you know, a swift fag in a cafe and charges them. And then hundreds and hundreds of mods <laughs> descend on all this tiny cafe and break everything. And Jimmy Meemala sort of trying to get sort of, you know, his kicks in in the background, but he's not really involved, or is he? It's that sort of thing. And in the middle of this, you also have the kind of police who kind of come in and riot gear on horseback, but essentially don't know how to approach these people who don't care. There's a wonderful sequence where there's, they've crammed all of them into a magistrate's court, and the magistrate is sort of giving them a real ticking off, saying, you know, I've never seen anything like this, and finds them all 50 pounds. At which point, the ace face who's standing in the dock says, well, if you don't mind, man, I'd like to pay by check now. And everyone starts to, you know, erupts into laughter. So despite the fact that you have, you know, this kind of depiction of youth cultures being essentially in the right, in the sense that all the parents in the film appear sort of very kind of, fusty and old-fashioned and just don't get what they're going through um the film doesn't really glorify the mods and it actually to some extent is about what happens if you kind of identify too closely with a particular culture as opposed to having any identity yourself and it's it's rather odd because this film is largely credited with with kind of starting the mod revival at the end of the 70s when in fact towards the end it kind of actually shows that the mod lifestyle is actually quite a hollow experience in terms well certainly you know by the time the brighton riots are finished it started to sort of fade anyway and just as the who only became truly successful after they moved on from being a mod band after they started you know, experimenting with you know um, a quick one the mini opera that they wrote on their second album so jimmy only gets to see the real me when the scales like i say have fallen from his eyes and he realizes this isn't all that I wanted it to be, and I don't know who I am anymore. 
I mean, after Brighton, when he kind of gets back, having paid the fine, everything basically goes from bad to worse. So he gets thrown out of his home because his mother has found his stash of blues or amphetamines. <laughs> Lizzie Ash says she can't be bothered with him. He has his scooter, which is his pride and joy, which gets run over by a postal lorry, and he spends, like, the best part of two minutes just cursing at the post office workers. And uh, then, obviously, he sees the Ace Face working with, as a bellboy, so he takes the Ace Face's scooter and drives it off Beachy Head. And the final shot of it is the scooter hitting the rocks uh, to the ending of a... Uh, you stop of a helpless dancer and it sort of implies well the mods are dead in the sense you know the scooter is completely smashed but what's going to happen to jimmy and it leaves you with that sort of question hanging over the end of it yeah fascinating picture of history as well and i uh, sort of thinking about it this week and in sort of back in the 60s you know bank holiday weekends were important you know even into the 70s i think and now they're sort of just things that happen occasionally you get a day off work there's not the the big event of it uh certainly not the big event that you would go away to uh to have a fight on well, even, <laughs> yes <laughs> and that went on all the way through the 60s and the 70s in one guise or another and you were never as big as the uh as, as the events of brighton but uh you know there was still this big thing of the big day out uh, the youngsters would go up uh, and you'd have south end and you'd have ramsgate and margate and mm -hmm. brighton and yes it could end up in a in a scrap but even even so, I mean, it was the big thing. The family would take the train out. Uh, if you were in London particularly, you'd go out and, uh, you know, it's not that sort of spectacle of, uh, of, of bank holiday anymore. And also the, I guess, the, the interesting flavour of, you know, that sort of revolution of, you know, kids becoming mods later on, punks and... It's sort of, uh, I guess it was all groundbreaking then, wasn't it? It's it was an interesting picture to watch of how people have evolved. Yeah, and it was groundbreaking, but like I said, the thing that kind of captures for me about the film is the fact that it doesn't just paint a one-sided picture of mod culture or indeed yeah. the idea of kind of youth rebelling against their parents, because it kind of on the one hand says it was the right thing to do in the sense that the old way of life couldn't continue, but on the other hand, just identifying with that cause won't do you any favours. So just to round off, because it's getting close to 22, I don't think it's no, like a lot of these cult films, it is rough around the edges, and Frank Rodham is not a brilliant director. I mean, the cliff sequence where Jimmy's sort of driving along to the tune of I've Had Enough, it could have done with a couple of kind of hefty edits, because it sort of goes on for about six minutes and a bit too long. There is a lot of padding in the first hour when you kind of are introduced to the mod culture. I mean, some of that is necessary, but there's only so many times we need to go to parties or to cafes or to bars to understand, yes, this is how they live their culture. And I think occasionally the film does drift a bit too close to the sort of of American uh, culture of youth, like the Animal House, that the sequence where they break into the pharmacy and start playing around with condoms, and I thought that was a bit out of place. But, like I say, as a cult film, as something which is rough around the edges but presents its ideas in a convincing and compelling way, it does manage to look at mod culture comprehensively without falling in love with it, and it does do justice to the album. And although it's dated, it has dated better than Tommy, and I do think it is a highly influential work of 70s cinema. Not perfect, like a lot of the films we talk about in this, but if you're a fan of um, The Who or any of that kind of musical scene and you're interested in youth culture, then it is a consummate viewing. Yeah, great memories it brings back. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Anik. Anik. This is Lionheart Radio. Make sure I read this one rightly. Booker T and the MGs and Green Onions. Yeah, which is on the soundtrack of Quadrophenia and also features on the soundtrack of A Single Man, which came out two years ago and, for my money, is Colin Firth's best work, so go and check that out. So, next week's cult film, Blue Velvet. Yes, David Lynch. Should be good. It'll be very good. Right.
So we have five, um, hopefully, to uh, get through uh, before uh, the news, uh, new releases this I think week. we'll manage five, yeah. No we'll, um, we'll start with a good one, shall we? Source Code? Yes, uh, this is the film of the week, I should say, up front. New film by Duncan Jones, who is um, for artist formerly known as Zowie Bowie, and therefore is the son of David Bowie or Bowie. He previously directed a film called Moon, which, uh, did you see Moon? Came out about two years ago? No. Really no. terrific, low-budget science fiction film with a great central performance by Sam Rockwell. It's about oh, a guy right. who's stranded on the moon and finds out that you know, he might have been cloned or so forth, but that might be a plot spoiler. So, uh, this time, it's a much more mainstream effort. Jake Gyllenhaal plays uh, Captain Coulter Stevens, who is a US uh, airman who's been decorated. He wakes up on the train in a body of a stranger called Sean, uh, starts talking with uh, another girl played by Michelle Monaghan, at which point the train is bombed, but instead of dying, he wakes up in this strange capsule called the source code which it turns out is a government program which allows him to be someone else for the last eight minutes of their life and he's being sent back to find out who bombed the train in time to prevent another attack which will take place oh, a few hours time exactly now here's the thing when moon came out like i say about two years ago i really loved it and i wrote a piece online saying that duncan jones was the new ridley scott which is a bold claim <laughs> considering how good ridley scott is at, yeah. no, especially when he's making science fiction and i speak as someone who's completely obsessed with blade runner um it is a big claim, and this is a much more mainstream effort in the sense that there's more sort of money behind it, and if you've seen the trailer, there are more special effects, but I do stand by that comparison. F Jones is a really great director because he understands the genre of science fiction in terms of how it plays with ideas, but more importantly, he understands that science fiction, when done properly, is rooted in ideas rather than effects. It's the whole idea about using outer space to explore inner space. Um, in terms of the thing it owes a debt to, there is a sort of resemblance with The Jacket, which is a, it's a little scene film with Adrian Brody, which in turn links back to a film called Jacob's Ladder with Tim Robbins, which both of which um, deal with the idea of veterans being pulled into government experiments. And there is, in the case of Jacob's Ladder, mental illness involved, but no, it's yeah. no about kind of duty versus personal health and so forth. There is also a crossover with the Terry Gilliam film Twelve Monkeys, which is a really great piece of work. And no, that's the whole idea of a character being sent back in time to prevent a future disaster and he ends up becoming romantically intertwined with someone from the past but even though there are those similarities source code it, it handles those elements well when it has to and it does have its own identity i really like the central performances i mean jake gyllenhaal started his kind of got his breakthrough in science fiction when he made donnie darko about 11 years ago and i think he does he is suited to kind of genre filmmaking in that way it's a very good script jones is a very stylish director i mean he comes out of advertising so he knows how to sort of put images together which have a sort of inner meaning rather than just looking flashy i don't think it's going to be quite the knockout experience that moon was because that was just something really kind of strange and special that came out of nowhere but it is undoubtedly the film of the week and it's really good i think you sold it right are you going to you know, have a, have a <laughs> double bill with the eagle that'll indeed, be an interesting experience yes, yes indeed that would be uh, quite a contrast wouldn't it yes we shall defeat the scottish and then blow yes. up a train yes <laughs> i suspect the next one we you do not condone that on this yes. program no indeed the next one you may not sell quite as well i guess is uh, sucker punch yeah. Uh, new film from Zack Snyder, who um, has had a rather questionable career. He started out with the remake of Dawn of the Dead, which was sort of, hmm, okay, but obviously not as good as the original. Then he made 300, which was kind of flashy and riotous, but ultimately a bit empty-headed. Watchmen, which was far too long and far too dull. Most recently he made a children's animation called, and see if you can handle this title, Legends of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Yeah, very snappy. Yes, yes. which is an impenetrable animation featuring Nazi owls. Right. Just don't know why. So, 
It's, it's based on his original story. It follows a girl called Baby Doll, who is played by Emily Browning, who is sent to an asylum by her father, who has framed her for murder. She is informed that in five days' time, a doctor will come and lobotomize her, so she escapes into a fantasy world, imagining, and this is where it starts getting questionable, imagining that she is a dancer in a brothel who teams up with four other dancers to go on various quests to find these sort of mythical objects which somehow will set her free. There was a great quote from uh, Christopher Toki, who's the film critic of the Daily Mail, who said, It seems to have been made for 15-year-old boys by a sad middle-aged man whose only experience of life is from violent comics, shoot-em-up video games and online pornography. It sounds like they've taken four or five film scripts and sort of cut them together More or less, yeah, I mean, random it, order. Yeah, it's very <laughs> rare that I agree with Chris Toki, you know, because he often gets things very wrong. But on this occasion, he is spot on. I mean, the thing about Zack Snyder is this. He is visually stylish in the sense that he knows how to choreograph stunt work and he can use green screen pretty well but he can't tell a story or do anything with any amount of that i mean the setup is very similar to shutter island the martin scorsese film but with kind of early 20 somethings i mean shutter island itself was a sort of ripe homage to all those 50s b movies like shot corridor or the ninth configuration which was made by william peter blatty who wrote the exorcist the plot is essentially that of a video became because it's essentially we have to find these objects to add to our inventory and that will mean no we can move on to the next level and it, there's nothing narrative about it but the thing that makes this Willie Christopher for me is the whole thing about the objectification of women. And Snyder said when he made this that he wanted to make a film which sort of sent up the geek's view of what women are like, you know, the whole idea of people who have, you know, physically impossible bodies, sort of pneumatic, the, the Lara Croft figure, yeah. essentially. But in making Sucker Punch, he seems to have fallen into the very chauvinist trap that he tried to avoid, in the sense you have these five actresses, some of whom, like Abby Cornish, are very talented, but they kind of spend the whole film walking around in, you know, mini skirts and knee socks like they've just wandered out of a Japanese animation. <laughs> I mean, I don't... And it's like the whole argument about Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill when he said it was liberating. Yes, but you're not... You're not exactly putting forward a view of womanhood other than that of just, you know, someone jumping around kicking people and then occasionally behaving like a mother by having a bit of a cry. And in the same way as Sucker Punch, it's very much a film which is like... Just look at all these people running around in not much on kicking things which aren't really there because it's done by CGI and there isn't really any plot to speak of. So we're just having this for titillation. As you say, I... it plays to teenage boys, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's it's just basically boring chauvinist crap. All right. Should we talk about Hop? Yeah, um, slightly better. It's an Easter children's animation with the voice of Russell Brand. Where do you stand on Russell Brand? Yeah, um, that's an interesting <laughs> question for a Saturday morning. The answer, um, of course, to the joke is I'd stand. I on think him. he's um, <laughs> he, he is very he is very funny, but he doesn't know when to stop. And I would agree with the second part of it. I don't think he's very funny. This is from the director of Alvin and the Chipmunks. The story is there's a rabbit called E. B. who is played by Brand. Uh, he's the heir to the title of the Easter Bunny, but instead of being the Easter Bunny, he wants to be a drummer. So he leaves his father, who's the incumbent Easter Bunny, played by a typically grumpy Hugh Laurie, uh, when he acts, when he, well, not just accidentally, he gets knocked down by a car and taken in by his human owners. Meanwhile, his brother, who has sort of been overlooked, is plotting to take over the throne and so forth. So it's essentially the same execution as the Alvin and the Chipmunks film, in the sense it's no CG animals being taken in by humans, clue bad slapstick and jokes about poo. I mean, if you've seen the trailer for Hop, there is a joke about jelly beans, which is done in that sort of way. There's not a really originality in the script. I mean, the whole idea about someone wanting to take over the Easter Bunny is kind of similar to the Grinch wanting to take over Christmas. And note that for all the problems I have with Ron Howard's version of the Grinch, that is a much more interesting attempt. It is yet another vehicle to, for Russell Brand to bring Russell Brand. It'll probably be a damn sight better than the remake of Arthur, which is coming out later this year. 
but I wish he'd either do something different or just stop while he still can. <laughs> Fair enough. Right, Killing Bono. Uh, which is a new comedy uh, based upon the memoir by uh, Neil McCormick, which is called Killing Bono, I Was Bono's Doppelganger, uh, featuring Ben Barnes and the last ever performance by uh, the late Peace Postlesweight, who died uh, earlier this year. Uh, the story follows uh, brothers Neil and Ian McCormick, who uh, begin as teenagers wanting to be rock stars, and over the course of the film, they watch their schoolmate, a certain Brian Hewson, which will make sense if you're a U2 fan, uh, form U2, change his name to Bono, and they have to watch as, you know, their schoolmates become the biggest rock stars in the world, and they're sort of, you know, struggling to get famous in the first place. It's a potentially interesting story about, I mean, about sort of the idea of the nearly men, the men who sort of didn't quite make it, the people who sort of left the band just before it, they yeah. became a hit and so forth. I mean, there are a number of sort of nice coincidences in the production. I mean, it's distributed by the same people who distributed the U2 concert film Rattle and Hum, so there is a sort of in-jokiness going on. The problems with it are it's got quite a limited audience for a start in the sense that it will appeal to U2 fans who kind of followed them from their days when they were called the hype. And it does feel a little bit televisual. I mean, the screenplay is by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenna, who are most famous for writing yeah. Porridge. And it, so it, it does look like a film that would have made more sense done as like uh, a straight-to-TV biopic like um, the film about Karen Carpenter or the Dennis Quaid film Great Balls of Fire, which is about yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis. There's a famous story about that where he wa Dennis Quaid wasn't allowed to... Um, uh, sing his own versions of the Jerry Lee Lewis hits because Jerry Lee Lewis said to him, you can't sing like Jerry Lee, to which Dennis Quaid bravely responded, and you can't act like Dennis Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> Which is brave, because, yeah. you know, you have to be brave to say that to Jerry Lee Lewis. So, it's fine. It's, you no know, not the best made thing in the world, and it has a sort of niche audience, but if you're interested in the history of U2, it's probably good for a laugh. One for people of a certain age. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly if you yes. followed U2 from their early days when they were sort of, when Bono still had a mullet and was appearing on the old grey whistle test, then you'll probably find some, something charming about it. Yeah. But if you grew up with them sort of, as I did with, you know, All You Can't Leave Behind, and you know, when they were trying to sort of be statesman-like, yeah. then I think you might find it a bit toe-curling. Yeah. Not one of my bands, I have to say. Well, um, fair enough. And we finish hopefully on a high, Oranges and Sunshine. It is a high. Uh, it's the debut film by Jim Loach, who is the son of Ken Loach, who I think is most famous still for Kez. Indeed, which yes. Is fantastic film. I remember being shown Kez uh, in Year 9 English. and yeah, brilliant film. Depressing, but brilliant, like a lot of Ken Loach's stuff. Um, starring uh, Emily Watson, who is best known for Punch Drunk Love or possibly Breaking the Waves, although the less said about that, the better. Um, alongside two graduates of The Lord of the Rings, you have uh, David Wenham, who in Lord of the Rings plays Faramir, and nice. Hugo Weaving, who plays Lord Elrond, although obviously they don't play those characters in this film. Um, the story is Watson plays a social worker from Nottingham. It's uh, set in the early 80s. Uh, it's a drama about home children, which were... Uh, these children from the UK who were forcibly relocated from their care homes in the UK to go and live in Australia or Canada. And the title comes from the fact that they were promised oranges and sunshine, but they did end up in kind of institutions or in some cases doing hard labour. And it was the whole idea that this scheme was going on throughout the 20th century where basically the British government realised it's cheaper for us to buy a ticket for them to go to Australia than to pay to look after them for a month. And it was just a really extraordinary thing. Coming from a member of the Loach family, you would expect a drama in which nothing is sweetened and there are no punches pulled. I mean, if you remember Kez, for all the moments in it with the Kestrel, which are sort of yeah. transcendently beautiful, there is a yeah. lot of stuff in it which is sort of grim and tough. Yeah, indeed. But in a yeah. good way. I mean, yeah. no, don't, it's a very good film. The film that it reminded me most of, Origin of Sunshine, is, did you ever see a film called Rabbit Proof Fence? 
No, it's not one I remember. A very interesting film about three Aborigines who are separated from their tribe in Australia because of um, the Australian government's policies of kind of wanting to anglicise them, make them sort of, you know, convert to Christianity and embrace white culture and so forth. And to get home to their tribe, they walk along this rabbit-proof fence all the way across to Australia while being tracked by some kind of trappers who are being supervised by the colonial officer who is played by Kenneth Branagh. Mm. And that was an interesting film. I mean, it was directed by Philip Noyce, who made The Quiet American, and it had a Peter Gabriel soundtrack, and it was again based upon that idea of relocating people, albeit not necessarily on racial lines. And it, you know, certainly in the way that it's, there's a sort of class basis in this film, Ken Loach does, sorry, Jim Loach does seem to have inherited some of his father's sort of Marxist leanings. I wouldn't go in expecting a happy ending because it does kind of, it is based on a true story and it is sort of rooted in sort of grim reality, but I think it's a very fine piece of work. You might have to travel to see it because I don't know whether the Tyneside are holding it, but if you are willing to travel, then by all means check it out. Great. So, two very strong recommendations. Yeah, the film of the week is Source Code because I think you stand a very good chance of seeing it and it is the best on release and that's followed by Oranges and Sunshine. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming in. You're welcome. We will see you next Saturday between 10 and 11. Yeah, as always. Blue Velvet. And before that, are you here this, this yes, week? Yes, I'll be, I'll be here on a, a Thursday as per usual, 1 till 3. So, uh, tune in for that. Great. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.